Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. Today we've got something a little bit different for you, something a little bit longer, but uh, I won't belabor it. I'm going to let Clay Smith explain and he's going to be leading this one. Here you go. Welcome to the journal feed podcast. I'm Clay Smith. As many of you might know, we recently covered an op-ed in the Annals of Emergency Medicine called Dear White People in Emergency Medicine. And this led to some lively discussion. Um, Some were angry, some were thrilled, some were confused, some had questions. And as we got more and more comments and questions pouring in to the blog and to my email inbox, it became clear that we needed to have more of a conversation. So I certainly don't want to stoke controversy, but I do want to learn more about how I can be a better ally to my colleagues who are obviously hurting and feeling the sting and pain of racism in our EDs, in in my ED. And I've been thinking a lot about diversity and not just with regard to race, but diversity is all around us. It's in the fall colors. It's in the very tones of the human voice. We're not robots. I mean, it's in exquisite combinations of flavors, but somehow when we're faced with diversity in people, we sometimes respond differently, but it just doesn't have to be that way because diversity makes us better. Diversity is beautiful. Diversity makes us stronger. And that's what we want to talk about today. I, uh, I couldn't be happier to welcome four new friends to the journal feed podcast today. And I'm honored to have you all here and excited to learn more about this. So let's just jump in and we'll do some introductions. So why don't each of you introduce yourselves? We'll start with Cortland. Perfect. Hey, everybody. My name is Cortland, and I am the Vice Director for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion here at Carolinas in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, I also run our Healthcare Disparities and Emergency Medicine rotation. I'm really excited to join this podcast today. Great. And Kimberly? Hey, everyone. My name is Kimberly Brown. I am in a community emergency physician in Memphis, Tennessee, where I currently work for St. Francis Bartlett Hospital. So happy to be on with you guys. Great. And Itel? Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is uh, Italo Brown. I am an associate, excuse me, assistant professor in emergency medicine at Stanford and also the social justice and health equity curriculum lead for the Stanford School of Medicine. Great. And Rosney? Good morning, everyone. My name is Rosney. I am an assistant professor at UCSF, where I also did a residency, chief residency, and a medical education fellowship. I work in our residency program as well as do some work with the School of Medicine, do some faculty training, and also work on a couple national groups. So happy to be here. Great. And Irini. Hi, everybody. I'm Irini. I'm one of the second year residents on Vanderbilt. And Nick. Hi, I'm Nick. Anyone who already listens to the podcast should be familiar with my voice. I'm a first-year resident at uh, McGill University in Canada. Great. So I'd also like to thank the Journal Feed community for submitting such thought-provoking, challenging questions and for, uh, you know, the civility with which uh, the questions were submitted. Um, So it's important to mention that apart from some minor grammatical edits, we're going to be posing these questions exactly as you, the reader, submitted them. So the questions tended to follow some some themes. So we'll tackle each one here. The major themes were communication about race with patients and colleagues, managing law enforcement in the ED, uh, patient care and race, specifically sickle cell anemia, becoming better allies, and hitting some commonly raised objections. And finally, just a potpourri of some random stuff at the end. So Irene, why don't you kick us off with the first question that deals with communication with colleagues? 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, the first question is posed by a woman who's of color. So being a woman in healthcare and working in a high stress critical care environment, it's hard enough in a male driven field. Add to that the fact that you are a black, that you are black makes it 20 times harder for your clinical decision making to be heard by your peers and coworkers. How do you assert your opinion and authority in a professional and polite way with your other non-African American male counterparts? I guess I'll take this question. Um, so I trained here in Memphis um, as a part of the very first class of residents ever be graduated from my program. Um, and so a lot of my attendings were white males and my colleagues, even in my program, were white male. So I feel like because I was trained in an environment that was pretty, I would say, have diverse, lacking diversity, it made it a little bit less challenging for me to navigate, you know, wondering, you know, are, are you listening to me? Are you not listening to me? Is it because I'm a woman? Is it because I'm a person of color? I'm usually kind of used to that working environment. So when I do um, encounter some issues or challenges, it's usually not from my ED colleagues. It's usually from another colleague from a different specialty, whether it be surgery, internal medicine, et cetera, and so forth. Um, unfortunately, most recently, I've had a negative experience where I had another physician yell at me on the phone um, when I was trying to admit a patient. So I try to not take things personally um, for the for the first part of it. That can be very difficult. Of course, you always wonder, are you speaking to me this way because you're having a bad day? Are you speaking to me this way because there's some sort of bias that you hold towards me because I'm a woman or um, sometimes they do know I'm a person of color, sometimes they don't. But I try to depersonalize it more so than anything in the moment and just try to take the patient um, and whatever the situation is um, first and put them first in every situation. So whenever someone um, is negative towards me or I feel like there's a bias or there's something wrong, I try to focus on the patient that's most important stay calm, stay even. Um, I definitely don't let anybody disrespect me. And I let them know in the, in the moment I feel disrespected. I feel um, that you're not listening to me. Um, and if, if we can't agree about this, about the patient, then maybe we need to move into different channels, et cetera, and so forth. So remaining firm, keeping the patient first um, is the best thing I would say for anyone to do when they're in a challenging situation with another colleague. I think something that's really important is to think about our intersectionality, right? So many of us carry several different identities at once, whether it be our race, our gender, our specialty that we come from, where we're practicing in the country, et cetera. There's so many things that make up who we are. And oftentimes these questions get reflected onto the individual person and say like, how can you as a person of color, how can you as a woman, how can you as someone from the LGBTQ community be listened to more? I think, yeah, one, it's about having some kind of um, resilience and being strong and being able to assert yourself, but also it's just about teaching our colleagues as well about the trials and tribulations that different, inter different people and different identities go through in order to help them be more supportive as well. So it's not just about the person who is kind of the victim of name calling or not being listened to or whatever it may be. I think it's also about building a community of support that supports all of our colleagues and especially pays attention to folks who have traditionally been marginalized in many different ways. All right, uh, I've got another question here that was um, that was sent in. Um, how can I relate to patients who are of historically marginalized races 
that I will do everything I can to care for them and um, care for them equitably in the emergency department. I can go ahead and take that one. So I think that's a really great question. Um, And the first part of my answer is going to sound pretty cliche, uh, but it's really important to put yourself in your patient's shoes. Um, While doing that, it's also important to acknowledge that you will likely never understand their full experience. Um, Their perspective and feelings about the healthcare system are largely based on a wide range of personal experiences. For example, on my last shift, um, one of my colleagues kept calling a patient sickler rather than using the people first language of an individual with sickle cell disease. Um, So their perspectives and feelings are based on their personal experiences as well as historical experiences. And these historical experiences are vast and varied and for marginalized groups, go beyond Tuskegee, which is kind of what we all frequently think about. Um, So you really need to understand where your patient's coming from. So I really recommend all providers read Medical Apartheid, The Dark History of Medical Experimentation on Black Americans from Colonial Time to Present to gain a better understanding of some of the reasons that their Black patients, for example, have a strong sense of distrust of the medical system. And then once you understand or you know, do your best to understand your patient's personal and historical perspective, it's important to use a person-centered approach with your communication. And there's a bunch of different models that help with that. Some of them are LEAPS, which is listen, educate, assess, partner, and support. WEMS, waiting, echoing, mirroring, and summarizing. And NURSE, which is what they taught me in med school, which is naming, understanding, respecting, supporting, and exploring. And you can just Google each of these um, and Google some studies, and they've actually been shown to increase patient satisfaction. So it's really kind of important not just focus on your patient's chest pain, but really to go beyond that and ask them about their life. You know, are there recent stressors that they're going through? And get a sense of what matters most to them using shared decision-making. I um, have a question that is, mirrors that. So at the intersection between race and health, outcomes become increasingly at the forefront of national discourse. I have found that patients have become increasingly confrontational and demanding of what they want. And the example that was provided was antibiotics for a URI, specifically citing historical oppression of of Black people and even calling me a non-Black person of color, a racist for not giving them what they want. Spending extra time explaining evidence-based practices falls on deaf ears. What else can I do at an individual level to stay true to my practices while working to understand my patients' perspectives and fight against systemic racial oppression? That's a good question, and I'll take that, Irony. Um, I think Cortland highlighted a lot of different things that we can do as physicians in order for us to understand at least somewhat where our patients are coming from. Not just Black patients, but also Native American patients and Hispanic patients have been commonly mon- marginalized and historically experimented on as well. Um, so I would just like to just echo everything that she just said as far as making sure that you understand, at least historically, where patients are coming from. Um, And it's fine to acknowledge in the moment that you do understand um, the the historical nature. Sometimes people just need to know that their concerns have been heard um, and telling your patient that's exactly what you you, are aware of, but that's not the, the bias that you are trying to come from. 
is the best thing that you can do is just acknowledge um, the patient's feelings and their sentiments. But I think at the end of the day, the best thing to do is just to stick with what you know and make a shared decision um, with the patient, just like Cortland said, in order to move forward and making sure the patients have good follow-up plans going into discharge and other dispositions to know that you care about them as a whole person, not just to not prescribe them antibiotics when they feel like they need them, but to make sure that they have a whole healthcare plan in order for them to be discharged from the hospital. So another theme that we saw several times was related to navigating our interactions with law enforcement in the ED. So Nick, take it from there. Yeah, so I'll start off with the first question from this, which was, how do we navigate police interactions in the emergency department, sort of trying to balance the necessity of working with them as colleagues of a sort um, within the larger societal system, which has obviously been quite highlighted in recent years, with the reality that police um, brutality against racialized populations exists? I can go ahead with that one. Oh, that's a tough question. Um, And I'm really glad that somebody posed this to us. So I really struggle with this. Um, Whenever it gets down to it, I frequently just remind myself that my primary responsibility in the emergency department is to my patients. That's also coupled, however, with the responsibility to ensure everybody else in the emergency department, including staff, are safe. Um, I've had wonderful interactions with law enforcement in the emergency department, and I've also had terrible interactions with law enforcement in the emergency department. There's this 2021 article in Annals of Emergency Medicine, and the authors conducted semi-structured interviews with EM practitioners in Northern California, and they basically asked them about their experiences with law enforcement in the ED. They found that some individuals talked about positive interactions, and some examples that they gave were whenever police gave providers helpful information about the patient and what brought them to the emergency department, what their scenario before the emergency department was. On the other hand, some individuals discussed negative interactions, and those included disruption in medical evaluation and treatment, fluidity in terms of information sharing, which they felt led to compromises in patient privacy and confidentiality. And then also just, you know, the patient and their fear of disclosing certain information to the provider with law enforcement there, or even fear of police brutality while in police presence. And what they found was that many of these negative themes and negative interactions were based on a lack of mutual understanding of the policies that guide interactions between law enforcement and patient or law enforcement and providers in the ED, as well as a lack of understanding and knowledge about the legal authority of police in regards to the patient's medical care. Um, And I have, I trained in California and I'm now practicing in North Carolina. So I realized that a lot of these laws and these policies are either institutional dependent or state dependent. So it's really important to learn what policies you're working under. Um, So for example, what's the policy on providers conducting legal blood draws for police in your state? Um, I had to learn that whenever I moved to North Carolina because everything's a different approach here. Um, And my general approach whenever I'm interacting with law enforcement is just to generally ask them to leave the room for all patients that I have if I feel safe while I'm getting a history and performing the exam. Um, And I try to provide minimal information um, so that I can maintain patient privacy. 
but it's definitely, you know, a tough situation to navigate. So I'd love to hear anybody else and their thoughts. No, I think you named uh, some very critical pieces of, uh, of insight there, specifically the fact that there has to be an ongoing conversation with uh, law enforcement. And so what I really encourage people to do is have individuals in your department actually facilitate those conversations at the, I would say at a larger level, like a local level. I think it's important to uh, get policy agreed upon and making sure that everyone that's on faculty or everyone that's in the department is aware because sometimes it's not just the provider it may be uh mps it may be your your uh techs who are also experiencing this and there's a sense of of deference because you're dealing with law enforcement and so i think that we have to be very clear within our departments entirely around what policies exist, uh, but also making the stretch to go outside of our departments and engage them in community, engage them in uh, our civic sense, and also to be very active at the level of any type of local meetings, local um, policy making, so that we can have direct insight. I'm giving snaps to that answer. I was gonna add in that I like that you mentioned that in a way, law enforcement are our colleagues. Um, Itala, I'm surprised you didn't bring this up, but there's this concept now of social emergency medicine. And I think it's funny <laughs> that people even bring this up as like a separate topic, because we all know that in the emergency department, we're 911 for society. We're not just 911 for medical issues. So we're 911 for any societal problems, which is kind of the same thing that a lot of law enforcement deals with. So we're working together dealing with some of the most kind of complicated uh, issues that we see in our society, whether it be people experiencing homelessness, um, domestic violence, substance use disorders, people with psychiatric trauma, medical illness, all these different types of things that wrap together where 911 is called and who shows up. Sometimes it's fire, sometimes it's medics, sometimes it's police, and oftentimes they end up in our emergency department. So in a way, we certainly work with them as colleagues, and I would just highlight back to what Cortland mentioned, that patient care comes first. We need to respect privacy and we need to work with each other in kind of the most collegial way possible to make sure that we have an understanding and make sure that we're each doing our part that we're specifically trained to do in order to care for the patient. Uh, quick, just, I guess, I don't know if anybody, any of you have done this more. So do you sometimes take a moment to sort of explain to the police officer who might be there kind of your role and and the information and how your, your priorities? Because I've had some interactions with police where I think they get kind of a little bit turned off because it's obviously a very one-sided information because I want all the information that they have to give me right. and right. I'm not going to give them any information about the patient. And I feel right. like some of them get a little bit I'm going to say grumpy. <laughs> no, I, I've experienced that. And I think that it is important for you to kind of reframe uh, exactly what the nature of that relationship is and constantly using the language like I'm an advocate for this patient. Right now, this patient is in my care. I will make sure that I advocate to the best of my ability. I'm happy to, you know, explain to you the things that I've seen or the things that you've seen or, or, or accept the things that you've seen in your work. But this patient is unique. And we have to start with that. Uh, it, it's not the same as your other experiences that you've ex you've had with other patients. Uh, and that's to the officer. The other thing that I was going to say is you'd be surprised what you learn from actually engaging officers outside of the emergency department. How, um, I've gone on ride alongs with officers like I actually do that. So I have a better understanding of what their life stresses are. And so that I, I have some type of like currency when I communicate with them. 
So I do encourage that uh, ED providers try to engage them in other uh, frames so that you have better understanding of what they come to the table with. And this is not to say that all of a sudden, you know, we completely understand their experience, but it follows the same concept of why we said diversity is important in the first place. It's about recognizing that everybody comes to the table with something different and unique. Okay, thank you. All right. That's a great answer. And real quickly, there was another um, question in this category about uh, population data on police brutality. There's a great website. Um, it's called mappingpoliceviolence.org um, that has a lot of good population data um, for anyone who's interested in, in getting concrete um, information about that. The hard part for me with this is that it's usually undercaptured. And so I want to acknowledge that up front, uh, trying to use the data almost like a, a, a rule of thumb for this is going to fall uh, dramatically short of our expectation. And so just encourage, I encourage people to uh, have conversation with patients, take anecdotal evidence to mean something, not just the fact that it is, you know, printed with some percentages or some data points. We have to validate their experiences as well. That's a fantastic point. And, and thanks for, for that website, Irene, because I mean, talking about dry population-based statistics might not be the best thing for a podcast like this, but it's extremely important um, for us to understand. And so, so we'll drop that uh, into the show notes for sure. We did have one specific question related to patient care, namely regarding patients with sickle cell anemia. Yeah, so we already mentioned sickle cell anemia earlier, but here's the question that was on it was, how do you propose we overcome the racism that exists in the treatment of adult sickle cell patients? The person who asked this question explained that they've developed an order set to reduce the chance of bias, but it still isn't working enough. Well, I think it's a unique question because on one hand, uh, sickle cell in some I guess, regions isn't even seen that often. And so we have providers with a variable experience or interaction with patients who have sickle cell disease. Um, and, and I kind of bring this to the forefront because we're taught in medical school how to basically to view it one particular way. We see it as this illness and then eventually it's like there's these crises and there's very bad outcomes related to this condition. And then it's like, taught about pain management. And so we automatically start to formulate a, uh, a bias on how these patients tend to be, uh, how they present and how we manage them. And so one of the first things I say is, we have to acknowledge that bias, we have to address that bias. So I would start with realizing that there is uh, a, a lasting and even a systemic uh, bias against patients who have sickle cell disease. You can look at the funding for sickle cell research compared to uh, cystic fibrosis research. They're vastly underfunded. Uh, and even the, the way that the algorithms are created are different. You know, admission times are different. <laughs> and so seeing that systemic part shows that this is a very real issue. Now, uh, what I would say in, in terms of reducing bias, start with the fact that this is a patient with pain, not that this is a patient who has sickle cell disease in pain. Uh, if you would manage pain any differently for a person based upon a condition, then there's some different uh, digging that has to occur and some soul searching. So I would say that is the, the foundation. And I think the second thing is realizing that order sets are good, but systemic and structural change is better. So how do you 
go through the process and the steps to improve the way that all people perceive patients with sickle cell disease? What are you doing at your institution to increase the knowledge uh, of these particular outcomes? How are you increasing the the funding pool for research in sickle cell disease? And how are you encouraging the production of literature so that we have better ways of managing patients with sickle cell disease? So I would say like really think of it as a tiered approach. First tier is treat pain the way you would for anybody, regardless of the condition. Second tier is how do I encourage policy and increase information to reduce biases around treatment of patients with sickle cell disease? And the top tier, again, would be looking for large scale change so we have more funding in general. I'd like to just piggyback off of what Italo said. I think that's great. I think with a disease, especially like sickle cell, it's so multidisciplinary. Of course, we see the patients in the emergency department try to manage their pain. A lot of times they're getting admitted to a hospitalist. Um, and then um, sometimes a hem hematologist will come see them as well. So remembering that we have other colleagues and other branches of medicine in order to help best take care of these patients will help to build good policies, build good protocols and procedures, build good order sets. Um, but making sure that we are reaching across the aisle in a way um, and talking to our other um, colleagues in the House of Medicine and make sure that we're taking the best care um, is a great way in order to reduce some barriers and to make sure that these patients are getting the best care throughout their hospital stay. I love that answer. I think it's also important you know, Italo talked about the education aspect of things. I think we also have to focus on re-education. So you educate and then you re-educate and then educate again. And this is a big cycle, um, especially, you know, with today's era where we have a lot of new learners. We have a lot of traveling nurses who may not know the system, may not know the order sets or be comfortable with the type of pain medication that's in the order set. And so it's that education, re-education cycle that needs to continuously be done. I think um, this is obviously a bit of a, a hot topic question because I think it brings together so many things that we see when we think about um, racism and the intersection of medicine and history and research, et cetera. For me, I think there's a lot of responses to this journal feed production and Oftentimes when I'm teaching about equity and inclusion, people often say, I don't see color or I don't see race. Um, maybe that's true for you as an individual, or maybe you feel that it's true, but I think that the institution of medicine is the exact opposite. All of the research that's been done, all the training that gets done. I remember like class after class in medical school, all this different learning, we're taught to think and look at race all the time. That's kind of what our country was built off of and a lot of what modern medicine is built off of as well. So I think it's not, it's not okay to say, I don't see race. It doesn't affect my practice. Even if that is a hundred percent true for you, which it probably isn't the triage nurse, the patient tech, the hospitalist, the, you know, years of literature and research that are going into the treatment of whatever disease you're taking care of. All of those have seen race and influenced every single kind of piece of workup and treatment that you do. So I think it's not okay to say, I don't see race and I don't treat sickle cell patients any differently because we do. It's just, it's a fact. It, 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 is, it, is, it is not true to say that race is not playing a part because it 100% is. And I think we just need to start by really acknowledging that because we can't treat the problem if we can't all agree that a problem exists. Fantastic. You know, one theme that I'm really interested in 
is how I can be a better ally to my friends and colleagues in the ED who are black. And so there were some questions uh, with regard to this. Right. So kind of about, you know, becoming better allies. So how do we make white people feel like it's their job to address racism in emergency medicine and not just people of color? I got this one. So I have a pretty unique perspective. So I'm half black, half white. But if you look at me, most people would say that I just look white. So sometimes I use my secret identity as half black, half white to kind of chat with people from that perspective. Um, I'm currently doing a master's of clinical operations. And one of the themes basically of every single class is get back to the data. So to help encourage non-minority ED healthcare providers to address racism in regards to their patients, I try to give them data that shows that minority patients receive subpar care. Um, there's data that regard, relates to that in terms of many conditions such as diabetes, kidney disease, pain management, and this care differential is largely based on racism and provider bias. So that will do it for some providers. Um, but if thinking about specific patient outcomes doesn't encourage your colleague that you're talking to to learn about how they can help tackle racism in the emergency department, then I generally talk about how providing equitable care is one of the Institute of Medicine's six domains of healthcare quality. And I think that's helpful because a lot of hospitals and departmental leaders place a lot of emphasis on these domains, and they're sometimes even tied to promotional and reimbursement criteria. Then whenever it comes to encouraging non-minority ED healthcare providers to address the racism that other providers experience in the ED, do the same thing. So go back to the data. So the first step is just even in getting individuals to realize that ED providers experience racism in the ED. So this is a seamless self-promotion of an article that Rosny and I published with our colleague, Dr. Star Knight, and we found that 76% of ED providers that completed our survey reported experiencing a microaggression and that this was more common with female and non-white respondents. And we found that the most common microaggression was misidentification. And this occurs to me all the time. Um, so, you know, within the last year, I have had patients continuously call me nurse, um, despite introducing myself as Dr. Brown. And while I've learned so much from my nurse colleagues, and it's not necessarily a problem they called a nurse at all, it's just the fact that the patient couldn't see me as a doctor. Um, so I actually have a little badge buddy that says doctor. And so in one instance, a patient actually called me nurse doctor because they thought that doctor was my last name despite introducing myself as Dr. Brown several times. Um, so these experiences go beyond microaggressions and even include overt discrimination. So that study that we did, we found that 76% of respondents reported being called a vulgar term by a patient and 21% reported being called a vulgar term by a staff member. So this is going on. So now that your colleague hopefully accepts that minority providers experience racism, we have to kind of get them to answer the question of, so what? So numerous studies have shown that having a diverse workforce leads to a healthier patient population. But to have a diverse workforce, it's important to fight racism towards minority providers because that racism can lead to imposter phenomenon, career dissatisfaction, both of which cause minority docs and providers to choose alternative careers. And then the last thing I'll say is, you know, it's known that healthcare providers who are, quote, stress are less productive and provide worse patient care than those that are, quote, unquote, well. 
So how does that relate to racism though? Um, when I was thinking about this, I came upon several articles, including an anonymous cross-sectional survey of emergency healthcare workers in academic emergency medicine. And they found that 30% of respondents reported moderate high or high stress resulting from racism. And then whenever they stratified the results by race, unsurprisingly, they found that 46% of black participants had moderate high or high stress resulting from racism compared to 23% of white participants. So it's a really, really tough question. I think there's so many different aspects to the answer. I think, um, Cortland, I always appreciate how much data you bring to the table and that's so helpful. Something I think about, as I mentioned intersectionality earlier, I think that any person who resides in a position of power and privilege, it's their job to make changes and they're going to be listened to better, right? So I think that we, we've already kind of stated this and I think people get triggered by it, but I'm just going to state it again. White people, not just in the United States, but across the world, hold a position of power and privilege. I understand that there's so many levels of intersectionality to that, you know, poverty, um, sexual orientation, um, gender, et cetera. There's so many things that affect that. But just in general, I think white people do hold a lot of power and privilege. So I think that for me, I relate it back to something as simple as like, okay, well, you know, I think of myself as a man in emergency medicine. I, I identify as a man. And for me, I hold a lot of power and privilege um, with, with that kind of gender category. So I think it's a lot easier for me to speak to certain kind of um, gender issues because I know I'm going to be listened to more just because of that power and privilege that I've historically held. So I think when I recognize I'm in a position of power and privilege, I, I want to try to understand how do I listen to my colleagues who aren't and how do I um, listen to my patients who aren't and how do I make sure to kind of advocate on behalf of people who don't hold as much power and privilege to ensure that things are kind of as equitable as possible for the reasons that Cortland mentioned. I think this next question is uh, perfect. Um, speaking of power and privilege, do you believe the minority tax exists? And should it be the responsibility of minority faculty to push for diversity at workplaces? Um, so to, I'll take this question. In short answer, yes, the minority tax definitely exists. And, and no, I don't think it should be the sole responsibility of minority faculty or ED staff members to push for diversity in their, their workplaces. Um, just to be clear, because I don't know if people really know the term, quote, minority tax. It's not an actual tax that uh, people are color are paying to the government. But what it actually is, is that the extra burden that sometimes financially uncompensated duties and responsibilities that a lot of times people of color are asked to perform um, in their institutions or programs in order to increase diversity. So sometimes that looks like um, serving as, on a committee that would racially be not diverse unless it, that was for that person that was there or serving on a um, and serving as a mentor for all um, you know people of color in a class of medical students etc and so forth just because you also have that same racial identity um, those things are opportunities are, are often wonderful and fulfilling but it takes a lot of time and energy and like I said, a lot of times we're not financially compensated for that time and energy that we are putting into these roles. Um, however, in a way, I think for me personally, it doesn't feel as though that is a tax. Um, I'm going to speak, like I said, of myself just individually. 
I come from a historically black college um, where I trained and I also came from a Caribbean medical school. So I see a lot of students and a lot of other people who need a lot of support and don't see um, a person like me coming from an HBCU, coming from a, um, a Caribbean medical school that are in emergency medicine. But there are several students, lots of students that can look up to me because they identify with one or both of those stories. So I often do feel like that it is my responsibility since I did get here to, to reach as I lift, as I climb more so, um, and making sure that other people coming behind me have the same opportunities, have the same information that I've gotten in order to get where I am today. However, just because it is me that has had this individual experience, that doesn't mean that anyone else that is not a person of color that did not go to a historically black college that did not go to a Caribbean medical school couldn't do that. So just because someone maybe because of me, maybe be from a different racial background or an ethnic background as you doesn't mean that you can't support it um, and support them and support other students that don't look like you. Um, I just always think that it's important to speak up and to lend your voice um, to issues that are going around around diversity and equity inclusion, but it is, should not be the sole burden of the person of color or the minority or whoever we're talking about to, to raise the awareness. Um, there needs to be everybody at the table that, that listens and hopefully takes that, that burden on and does what they can, what they can, whether it be mentoring, whether it be sponsoring, whether it be speaking up when something is going wrong or praising things when things are going right as well. I just wanted to add a couple of pieces to this. Um, <clears throat> you know, people of color and I come from, uh, basically the black perspective when I speak about this, uh, people of color are not monolithic uh, and, and the expectation or or the belief that all of us have a similar passion for wanting to do the things that Kim uh, talked about is what we have to dismantle. Uh, there are people who are of color and do not like to mentor. You know, so the assumption that everybody, just because a student is there and wants to uh, find or identify somebody of color to speak with, they may not be the best mentor for that person. And so we have to be very clear that uh, just attributing these responsibilities to individuals uh, should be like not just analyzed very carefully, but thinking about what the utility is. And the other side of that coin is uh, there are people who are non uh, who are black or non-minority who would benefit from having mentorship or engagement with providers of color. And, and that should also be carefully addressed. Uh, I think that we very often just default to who's in the department, who is available, and then who kind of would be the lowest hanging fruit to solve the problem. And, and that mentality has to shift. And I think that the last thing that I'm going to say is, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of us, on this call do these tasks because we're passionate about that work. We want to see change. We want to see the ball move forward. Uh, that is a, a very emotional, a physical uh, weight that comes with it. And we, we need to figure out ways to better compensate, to better uh, rehabilitate or reinvigorate and create a source for people who are doing this work because it is often underfunded, unpaid. It is often, often requiring longer hours to do. And we do the research for other people to have the streamlined version of it. So that has to be taken into account. I love that. I would also add the concept of the majority tax. 
So we talked about minority tax, but there's also the majority tax. And that really talks about, you know, individuals that don't come from marginalized backgrounds really taking on the responsibility of pushing forward equity. I so appreciated your your op-ed in Annals of Emergency Medicine. And it really helped me to say, I'm I'm welcome here in this space. Um, that my colleagues are saying, please step up. Because I think I have felt like, oh, should I really do this? Because I, I'm not in a, a particular minority group. And so it freed me up to say, yes, this is something that, that I can do. And so I really appreciate you guys writing this because it's been helpful to me personally. I think that's such a good point. And just want to remind everybody, you know, just like learning anything else or learning a new skill, you know, there's going to be failures, there's going to be successes, and that's okay. As long as you still continue working towards the same goal and trying to empower your colleagues, empower your patients, and support everybody from different backgrounds, that's really what kind of the end all be all is. But, you know, you are going to mess up. You may say something wrong. That's okay. Just continue to work towards getting better. Well, I appreciate any patience that my colleagues extend to me in this in this area. We we did have some tough, thought-provoking questions, and some raised objections or concerns about the article or aspects of uh, diversity efforts. And again, I really appreciate the thoughtful, civil way that the journal feed community posed these questions. So let's jump into the next theme, which was you know talking about some of the objections. So I've seen this uh, question be reiterated several times. Um, the question says, have any of the authors considered their hyper-focus on one particular race deprives people of other races of a healthy debate around the issues of race and in broader terms, identity? Emergency medicine has a sizable minority of physicians who are not born and raised in the U.S., and the white-centric approach of the authors seems nonsensical and at times unhealthy to them. So this is a really great question, and I think this comes up all the time in this type of work. I think many people feel excluded when we talk about race, because oftentimes what we default to is white versus black. There's several problems with this. One is we know that no race is a monolith, right? And race is a very poor proxy for many things. People use it as a proxy for genetics, which it's not. Um, and I think oftentimes we get kind of caught in this one versus the other. If you really actually read the article, it doesn't really do this. It talks more so about what's going on with people of color as a whole, what goes on with white people, um, and kind of mixes those things up too. I think that the title of this article was very triggering to people. Um, for better or worse, I think that it gets people to read the article, which is one of our goals, and to start thinking about these issues. But this does not specifically say white people are bad, black people are good. That is not as all what's talked about in the article. It's more so suggestions around, hey, these are things that are happening. Here's how we can all be allies to each other, because ultimately, we're all working together. And I think that it's just really important to, to take, a, take a chance to look at the content of the article and think about whether or not this is so focused, um, or, or, or maybe it's not. And I think that we do have the opportunity as people who are very intersectional, like I mentioned before, um, to really think about our, our space as individuals, and how we can kind of, um, how we can think, how we can learn, how we can uh, interact 
and how we can advocate on behalf of people who may not come from as privileged spaces and how we can act coming from the privileged spaces that we do have. So, you know, for instance, my, my dad is not from this country. He's from Haiti and he's a physician as well. So I think that him being a black person who is a physician, but also someone with an accent and also someone from a different country, I think he would react to this article differently than someone say who is black and was raised in, I don't know, Alabama and has been here for a long time or their family has been um, in the U S for a long time. So I think there's so many aspects of this that are really deep and difficult to think about and talk about, but I want to make sure that everybody is welcomed into this conversation and that it's not excluding anybody. The purpose of this article is never to exclude anyone is really just to bring up this issue of race that we often don't talk about. um, And that is really important to talk and think about because it's so important and ever present to so many people. And Rosni, you've used the term, you know, calling somebody in rather than calling them out whenever talking about these things. And I really like that term. Yeah. And I think the, to expand a little on that, um, Corlin and I know each other well, cause we trained together. So we've had a lot of these conversations. I think calling people in is this idea that if something is done not so perfectly or, okay, this could have been better instead of saying, Hey, you were wrong about this. And I don't like it. Say, Hey, I want to call you in and welcome you into the conversation and same kind of idea with the answer to this question. This is not to exclude anybody. I think everybody should be called into this conversation. And I think people's voices are all very important. So I, I want to hear from everyone. And I really appreciate the challenge of this question because it's so thoughtful and I think really points out um, a lot of the issue for when we talk about race, people get left out and it's not fair. I think we should include everybody in this conversation. I think you brought up a great point in saying that there are other minorities who experience this exact same thing. And, and we often overlook that. Uh, it, the fact that there are other marginalized populations represented in emergency medicine who have some of the exact same experiences. This is a, a, a bit of intersectionality along with advocacy for anyone in emergency medicine who feels like there is uh, a, a specific way that our specialty works malignantly. And so we have to be uh, bold enough to acknowledge the elephants in the room all the time. This is a similar question here, but I think we can really emphasize some of the themes we talked about. Um, it says, why is there an insistent on, insistence on white people as a whole race, regardless of origin? For example, I'm an immigrant from a non-English speaking country, and I have faced more discrimination and hardships than I'd argue some folks of color that are native to the U.S. I feel this need to categorize people in broad buckets is not helpful and fails to acknowledge large differences that exist within societal groups that account for differences. I think this question definitely relates to the prior one in discussion that we were having. I don't think anybody from a specific social identity is ever a monolith. Not all men are the same. Not all trans men are the same. Not all women are the same. Not all people who you know come from Spain are the same, etc. So I don't think that in this article, we were trying to make white people a monolith. Once again, I think that the title was really to get people to read the article and hopefully understand that there are people who hold positions of power and privilege and those who don't, and there are those who don't. So our intersectionality is like so important. I cannot emphasize this enough. In different spaces and at different times, we all hold different levels of power and privilege. And I think that there are so many people who come from, yeah, I'm, I'm maybe I, people identify me as white, but I also am from 
a non-English speaking country and I identify more with my patients who have limited English proficiency, et cetera. And I do think that every person's kind of personal experience and voice is important in this conversation. I think if we tried to include every single person and identity in this paper, it'd probably be about a million pages long and it never would have gotten anywhere. So I don't think that we should ever put whole groups of people into one idea and say that they can only be this or they can only be that. This is speaking a little bit in broad terms. And I think we all have to be um, careful and thoughtful about the fact that this paper is not perfect. We are not perfect and we cannot categorize people as a monolith. We have to think about people as individuals um, while at the same time bringing up some issues that may be persistent or consistent that we've seen in the past. I do want to point out one thing, even among the authorship, we are not monolithic. That, I mean, the for some readers, I'm sure that didn't like land because you see three last names that say Brown. <laughs> I understand, but we we truly are all unique and have different heritages and lineages. And, and that has to also be a thought. It's an acknowledgement of our own biases as readers, our acknowledgement as physicians and the way that we internalize what we uh, what we read and, and what's published. So I truly want that to be a practice of ours as well. And I think it is interesting. There was a parallelism between uh, an article that came out in Annals of Family Practice, Dear White People, and then this. And and, you know, this is this was a springboard to say, let's bring this into emergency medicine. Let's exactly. bring this conversation forward into emergency medicine. And so, you know, you were in, in part, you were keeping that parallelism. And then here we've got another question, which is uh, kind of hits on similar themes, but might get at um, some more specific stuff as well. And it was that I found the suggestion of the acknowledge ask platform and specific language to respond to a witness incidence of discrimination to being the most be among the most uh, helpful in the article. The sentence following this section, uh, quote, fighting your instinct to walk into the room as the white savior, end quote, uh, seems to suggest that a group of people, I'm presuming by how this is written, they're saying white people, um, can be who can be identified by their color, the color of their skin, inherently believe themselves to be superior to another class. In other words, it attributes guilt to a particular group of people based on their skin color. If our goal here is to be anti-racist, how is this discrimination helping us achieve that goal? This is a very common stance taken uh, about reverse discrimination and, and how what is written can be perceived. One thing I want to continue to emphasize is that we're talking about, this is an allusion to power and privilege. The white savior trope is an actual trope. It's not drawn out of abstraction. It's something that truly exists where the belief is that there's some type of altruism for coming in and being a savior figure and utilizing one's uh, inherent social position to do something. And it doesn't mean that it has to be good or bad, but it is truly a real thing. And we can't, you know, gaslight that particular notion. Uh, the other thing that I'd say is, this speaks to a certain degree of supremacy that does exist. Um, it is written and well-documented in the literature. Uh, the 1619 Project is a book that completely, you know, explores what that means. And I do encourage our listeners to, to take a second and add that to your, you know, 2022 reading list so that you can become more familiar with what that concept truly uh, is and more importantly, how it relates to your position uh, as a provider. Then finally, I would say that you know, I think that 
the goal of anti-racism is not just to uh, to speak up for people who are marginalized, but also to call out truth, you know, to identify things that truly do exist and are experienced broadly and, and diagnosing that just as we would diagnose a medical condition. So I, I don't feel like this is an overstep. And the fact that uh, this is coupled with a actual uh, a technique that is used, I think that that was more so stylistic. It's our ability to to write and land very salient points and link them to actionable items rather than kind of draw this parallel of, okay, we're going to discriminate in the middle of writing. I think it was so well said in the article how you, how you said resist that urge to, to sort of jump right in, but ask permission because that may be something that your colleagues would find very helpful, um, but that's up to them. And so get permission. So I really loved the way that that was stated. So as we mentioned, there were a ton of comments and all kinds of questions, and some of them didn't fit neatly into categories. And so we have this last section, which is sort of our, our potpourri section. So go ahead and kick us off there, Irene. Yes. So this question says, do you have any suggestions on how to combat the narrative of, oh, I worked hard for everything I ever got, pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I didn't encounter any privilege in the trailer park where I grew up, but I still made it work. Therefore, everybody else should be able to do the same. So how do we combat kind of that attitude of, you know, everybody trying to do with what they got rather than needing help? So I think this is a very common um, thing that is faced not just in medicine, but by people in general when we talk about race um, in the United States. And I've learned to think about this in many different ways. And one of the most recent uh, pieces that I read is called The Conversation by an author named Robert Livingston. I encourage people to check it out. He talks about how this is often used in, in arguments to say that, well, actually, this was more difficult for me, or actually, I had a hard time. It's not to say that people don't have a difficult or hard time. Um, growing up in whatever circumstances they may come from and trying to get ahead and while they face adversity in their lives. Many, many people face adversity in their lives and go through very difficult circumstances to get to the places that they're at, which I'd argue that anybody who's listening to this podcast who is a physician or medical student, I'm sure you've faced adversity in your life. I think what we can't forget is that we also live in the larger context of a racist society that institutionally, people have still faced more hardship, kind of purposely based off their race from laws that we've had, um, and policies and practices that have been put in place that we're still working to undo. I think that things have certainly changed for the better over time, but we still have a lot more work to do. And we just need to recognize that even if it's true that some people have a really hard time, and I, you know, cannot put that away and say, oh, that's not true. I think we also have to acknowledge that many people of color face a lot of hardship in getting to the places that they've been. And it's okay to listen to them and understand that that is, is fact for those people. I think that's a really great point, Rosny. Um, I think in the last couple of years, of course, as we have been having a quote racial reckoning in our country more specifically, and then it's trickled over to the entire world. I think what people often forget about the United States is that we said that we were founded on equity and diversity and inclusion, but we're not. Our founding fathers said that all men are created equal. However, those same men that wrote those things in the Declaration of Independence and in our Constitution 
held slaves, which were people of color, black people, and they were not, we were not considered equal. And so some of those things that our country has been founded upon has continued to trickle into every system. And it's very easy to forget that we started off on a foot that is a little bit, step, a few steps back from where the majority um, has started from. And so recognizing our unique nature of the founding of our country and therefore our policies, our laws, our procedures, our institutions, whether it be education, medicine, healthcare, business, however you want to look at it, there has been ingrained discrimination there. Um, whether we see it today or we don't, it's still there and we still have to continue to fight and find different ways to, to get past these, these barriers. A comment on the journal feed site was critical of the change in, in terms from equality to equity. It was claimed that these terms are mutually exclusive. So can you elaborate on what the difference are in these ideas and why the term equity is being used? How would you respond to the claim about equality and equity being trade-offs? I know that they sound very similar, but I don't think that they completely encapsulate the same thing, right? When I speak to students, I usually uh, use an analogy to express the difference between equality and equity. Uh, when you look at like a racing track, uh, for example, if we're you know talking about the Summer Olympics or whatnot, that racing track, for the lines to be marched across all at the same position would represent equality, right? Because everybody starts at the exact same place. Uh, but when you think about how that race is run, the inner lane being potentially shorter than the outer lane. So how do you make sure that there is still an even distance run? It's by staggering those lanes. When you stagger those lanes, you now create equity. And so when we talk about how these resources or things are distributed, equality would be making sure that everybody got the same resources, regardless of their position, regardless of what they come to the table with. But equity is actually including those different social circumstances that people face and trying to make sure that there is an adjustment and allocation based upon what that uh, scenario is. And, and noticing the difference between those two will kind of help us as ED providers to understand like, we could give everybody the same degree of care. We could give everybody the same uh, resources in the emergency department. It doesn't necessarily mean the outcomes are going to all be equal. It means that you have to do other work to compensate or to adjust. And that's how I tend to frame that for individuals. I love the track analogy. That, that's really good. I just get tired of seeing the same, you know, picture of a little kid looking over a baseball. I'm looking at a baseball game over a fence. I think that we have really can we bury that one in 2021? Because <laughs> I'm tired of that picture, y'all. Great analogy. So um, kind of wrapping up, I want to thank you guys, Corlin, Kimberly, Italo, Rosny, for taking the time to discuss this crucially important topic with us in emergency medicine. And thank you as well, Arini and Nick, for facilitating this discussion. So this is an area that I think a lot of us, all of us, care deeply about. I want to be a colleague in the ED who's a true ally. And I really, really appreciate you guys for helping me to do this better. All the resources that you listed on this podcast, I'm, I'm still really humbled by how much I have to learn, but this has taken me one step further. Before we complete this and wrap up, are there any other thoughts that you guys would like to share? Parting shots, uh, parting comments? I can, I can start. I just, want to say thanks for having us. I think that 
we all knew this would be a controversial um, paper once it got published and it, it wasn't surprising to us. And I think that these conversations aren't gonna be accomplished in reading one paper or listening to one podcast. These are complex conversations that are be, gonna be ongoing for, you know, if you really care about it, years and probably your entire life. So although I consider myself someone who has a lot of knowledge in this realm, I'm still learning new things all the time and being challenged all the time and learning to think about these things in different ways all the time. So the the biggest kind of goal that I see moving forwards is learning how to better support my colleagues, better support my patients, and really think about this term of equity and figure out how I can make better outcomes for people. So I'm I'm humbled and looking forward to, to still learning about all of these topics um, as I continue on my path as an emergency medicine doctor. I just want us to think a little bit more uh, critically around the way that we treat people. I think that we we spend years in the medical uh, institution, meaning like from when we first decide to be physicians all the way through training uh, to the point where we have the ability to practice, focusing on the medicine, focusing on how to be good clinicians. Uh, and we almost de-emphasize our ability to be good people. Uh, and so getting back to that core concept, uh, making sure that we have um, patience for one another and that we create space for these uncomfortable conversations until they're comfortable, until they are commonplace. Like that has to be uh, the next phase of emergency medicine and how we progress as a specialty. And I think that the last part for me is, you know, this is not bad. Like having these moments aren't bad. This is where growth occurs. This is how we uh, encourage one another, especially in a time that is as critical as now, where we see the, uh, I would say, convergence of social issues and health outcomes that are constantly, you know, uh, being experienced disproportionately. So our true goal as clinicians is to improve health outcomes, is to somehow uh, leave our mark on in terms of wellness and, and health equity. This is an opportunity. This is the chance for us to do that. And it starts with uh, learning about everybody. Everybody matters. I also just want to thank everybody that submitted questions. You know, there were so many great thought-provoking questions um, that really, you know, force us to reflect on everything that we were thinking. And I think that's always great. So thank you to all of the journal feed readers that listed questions for us. We really appreciate that. And, you know, I definitely would love to continue the conversation. And I just want to thank my co-authors on this Um you know, we got together to write this article in a very interesting way. Um, what you may or may not know, even though three of the four of us have the same last name, I haven't met, I don't think any of them in person. Um, and so for us to connect to write this, this article um, and to build, um, hopefully, on the knowledge of emergency medicine and race and equity and diversity and inclusion as well, um, is just the power of the internet. It's the power of Zoom. It's the power of GroupMe. Um, and so to be able to connect with each other um, in this way has been um, really amazing. And the last thing I want to say is Italo spoke on something that I've been really, really thinking about as a human being um, that I've been thinking about in my personal time is that just to re really remember that we are all human beings. We are more common than we are different. We have 
mainly the same DNA, except for little itty bitty changes that do different things for our eye color and our skin color and whatever. And we have to remember that when we are talking to each other, when we're treating each other, when we're dealing with each other, and I've really been working on remembering that when I feel as though I'm being discriminated against, when I'm trying to check my own biases um, with the patient, I have to remember that I'm just treating a person, a human being. And that's where we all have commonality and going from where we have common things, whether sometimes um, rather than going through our differences is a lot easier sometimes too. I'd just like to take a second to thank all of the authors for um, really bringing everybody that submitted a question into the conversation, uh, allowing me to be brought into the conversation and really continuing the conversation um, that your article started. And I just appreciate um, you being willing to talk and clarify all of the points that have been made. And uh, I think this is really great for anybody uh, who gets to hear this. This is an ex excellent discussion. Couldn't have said it better, Nick. Thank you all so much. Yeah, thanks again to to all of you for just putting out the effort to to write this op-ed to begin with. Um, the title caught my eye. It did exactly what you wanted it to do. And I'm glad that it did because it's been helpful for me. And I appreciate your work, um, not only in writing the article, but in all of you for dragging yourselves out of bed on this day when most of you guys are post night shift and for your passion to help the emergency medicine community to grow in this area. You guys are the best and um, thank you. And we're all messed up. We're just a, we're all just a hot mess. Man, that, that is the perfect rap.